Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tel Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Till, and the Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP, the Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education, and quick reference apps, legislative advocacy, and much more. ABMP's CE courses, podcast, and Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including Whitney Lowe, who's not here with us today, and articles by myself, Teluca. Thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com slash thinking. And I am very pleased, Jan Sultan, to have you here as my guest today. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me. Welcome. Hey, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You are, you, I asked you how to introduce you, and you said you are a student of Ida Rolf. You are an advanced rolfing instructor at the Dida, Ida, Dr. Ida Rolf Institute, formerly known as the Rolf Institute. And uh, last but not least, you were a mentor and teacher of mine at the Rolf Institute and influenced me in quite a few ways. And I have had a whole wish list of things that I've wanted to catch up with you about, uh, your background, getting older, if you're willing to talk about that, because that's happening to me for sure. And then, uh, you know, I heard about your recent uh, COVID experiences and wanted to hear about that as well. Well, let me do the age part first, because, uh, oh, good. you know, it's the, most, <laughs> it's the context from which I'm speaking. All right. um, I, I had my 80th birthday uh, last month, March 9th, and uh, it feels like a like a landmark. Um, at the same time, you know, I look around and I realize, oh, I know I'm this old because my kids are in their fifties. Um, I, I know I'm this old because, uh, I don't have as much energy as I used to have. Um, I was probably obsessed before and now I'm merely interested. (laughs) (laughs) So you've kind of like, uh, the level's gone down to a what others consider normal or something in terms of your passion and interest. That's funny. I, 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 it reminded me of what Art Riggs said when I asked him about that. He said something like that, too. He said, now I'm feeling like I'm going to speed the rest of the world is going at. Well, it's I, like that. And, of course, you know, I see my peers, I mean, in terms of age. Yeah. And I see some mighty old people at 80, you know, that they're, they've, it feels like they're, their uh, perimeter has closed in, mm. you know, and their area of interest is really right there in front of them. And they're kind of moving at a certain cadence. Mm. Um, the big thing that changed for me is I started driving slower and mm. I've always been a fast guy, you know, uh-huh. rode motorcycles, had hopped up cars, uh, just part of growing up in Southern California, you know, it's like culture, but all of a sudden it's like, I like my little, my little Toyota Prius <laughs> and I, I have contests to see how good a mileage I can get. <laughs> I got nowhere to go that's in a hurry. Everything can wait, you know. Anyway, that's um, yes. so up so until that's I what's, got COVID. So you're recalibrating. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was me turning 60 that started this question really rolling for me. And that's been a little while back now. But 
I really wanted to talk to people about getting older. I was trying to figure it out. And now that I look back a little while ago, I was trying to figure out, I think, how to get older without suffering around it. And it was basically this question, like, is there a way to age and have it be anything other than just something that sucks? So what do you think? Well, you you know, there's the old saying, the saying you hear, you know, aging is not for wimps and things like that. But I, but... I want to say that COVID taught me some lessons about this question. Yeah. Um, and I like to say that COVID for me was like the gift that came wrapped in thorns. Wow. And as I unpacked it, I realized that there was a lot of stuff about aging gracefully hiding in there. Um, yeah. And the main thing was to, this sounds so simple. Hmm. You can't avoid aging. You can't avoid some of the slowdown, you know, maybe the aches and pains that come, uh, you know, some physical things. But what you can influence is your attitude. And what I got out of COVID was I did not previously know how to be really grateful. Um, I might have said, you know, oh, yeah, I know how to be grateful. And I give thanks when I pray and, you know, all this stuff and no, no, no. There was a layer of grateful in there that I had not plumbed before. But when COVID took me up to death's door yeah. and sort of said, uh, you, you're living much longer is not a sure thing. What the shift that happened was I, I did an, uh, an internal inventory and I thought, I need to get a little bit more grateful about how much, how many gifts I've been given, how my life has gone, my vitality. And so I had a, I had a moment where I was, you know, it was fifth day I was in the hospital. I was in intensive care in isolation. Uh, everybody who came was double masked and, you know, in disposable gowns and, and I had oxygen and things in my arms. And I, I thought, there's a thing called a cytokine storm, which is a which is a part of having this kind of a of an infection or an inf- whatever they call it that is unfamiliar to your body. So your immune system goes into high gear, and that cytokine storm then generates inflammation almost as a byproduct of its activity. So there is a kind of autoimmune uh, response that is not consistent with the with the nature of the disease. So I, I started thinking about that, and I thought, oh, my immune system's overgoing, you know, is driving too hard. Yeah. And so, I thought about, you know, vagal tone, you know, the 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 dorsal ventral vagal. And yeah, let me just stick in a couple of thoughts here. I mean, we got. Yeah. I'll put in a reference to the uh, cytokine storm idea, a whole write up I did for uh, massage and body work on that, and how what that might be going on. We learned about that pretty early on in the. COVID story. And you've yeah. given us a couple, I mean, I'm so sorry to interrupt you because it's, I mean, I'm just right with you on the edge of my seat, but you've given us a couple of good punchlines already. You've let us know that where this great, this journey went, you survived. You're more grateful. I bet there's a lot of other uh, uh, things you brought away from that. But I, I'm just, I wonder if you would allow me to get a little context for our listeners too, before we get to the Shoot. rest of the takeaways Shoot. and things like that. It, interview me. <laughs> yeah, right. So, okay. Thank you. So you were, 
you, you know, in your bio, you said you're a student of Ida Rolf. I've been, Janet, even before this, and we'll get to the COVID thing, I've been wanting to ask you about that because you, I was at Esalen in the early 80s, Esalen Institute in California, studying with students of Ida Rolf. And if you don't know, she was the originator of Rolfing structural integration that has given rise to many different forms of structural integration and influenced the field as a whole in a somewhat inordinate way. So there I was at Esalen in the early 80s and hearing stories about Ida and learning from her next generation students who stayed there in that context, and then left, went to Boulder, studied at the Rolf Institute, and uh, met you. So anyway, I'm, I'm wondering if you could, because some of the stories I heard at Esalen were you were by you at Esalen. I remember Peggy Haran, who was apparently your uh, practicing model, telling me about those experiences there at the Baths. Yeah. So anyway, that's a long way of saying, Can we, let's get a little context. How did you get into this? How did you get to Esalen? What happened? What's the deal there? Okay, I'll give, yeah. Um, I'll keep it straight and simple because uh, we have a time limit. Um, yeah. I, I was in the Merchant Marine, which is commercial um, shipping. Yeah. I got lucky and scored a job on an oceanographic survey. Huh. And as a result, I got my Coast Guard certification as a merchant seaman, which you have to have to work in the U.S. as you a sailor. Growing up in Southern California, is this Long Beach or something? Is this... Well, I, I graduated from high school in '60 in um, in Westchester out of Westchester High School in L.A. Okay, and so my folks, my mother's a Jewish mother, um, and she expected me to become a medical doctor or a lawyer, you know, or something. Yeah, but I was like a restless boy, and I wanted to get out of school and into literally into the workforce. I wanted to work for a living. I wanted to get up against it. And because there was kind of, we were in a place where there were boatyards and stuff. Yeah. That's where I went. You know, I went down and said, hey, can I clean boats, you know, scrape paint, you know, stuff, caulk, caulk seams, lots of wooden boats around in those days. So I was fooling around in boatyards. I was a surfer, so I spent all my free time in the ocean. Um, I always had snorkel and fins in the back of the car so we could dive on fish, spearfish, abalone. You know, I was like a water guy. Well, one day my buddy comes over and he says, hey, they're hiring for a crew on this oceanographic survey that's based in Monterey. And it works off of this big old schooner. And so we literally, I just, at the end of my work day, we jumped in my car and we drove most of the night and we were at Monterey in the morning and went out to see the captain and the mate on the boat. And he looked us over and said, all right, you know, we can probably teach these guys how to work a sailboat. <laughs> Bingo, I got hired. So then we got, they, they sent us up to San Francisco to the Coast Guard and we got our merchant seaman license, which entailed a small training program about how to be a sailor. And, um, so that, uh, I was on, the ship was called the Te Vega, and I was ordinary seaman crew. So we sailed oceanography, oceanography students from uh, Frisco to, Maz to Mazatlan following the whale migrations. So we would pick up the whales as they went south. We'd go into Scammon's Lagoon, Gray's Lagoon. We did a bunch of diving, but we were like the, we were the crew. 
And the students were all, you know, young people interested in oceanography and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, the, the uh, Stanford eventually reached the end of their contract with the Defense Department because we also had some spooky stuff that we were researching for them. And uh, so I went to the Union Hall up in San Francisco and joined the Sailors Union because I had my papers. You had so I joined set, the Union yeah, right? and started shipping as an ordinary seaman. So you're, which meant you got into the Asia. you got into the Merchant Marines through that uh, oceanographic scientific uh, almost uh, tour tour guy or support for people doing some kind of investigation. I pictured yep. you out there like uh, operating a crane, loading like pallets onto ships and doing something like that. And... Well, the second half when I was an ordinary seaman on yeah. freighters, we did uh -huh. more of that. I got you. Um, and you know so. Anyway, to, to to consolidate that, yeah, I when I was on this Te Vega, which was the ship that was based in Monterey, uh -huh. I rented a cabin in Big Sur, uh -huh. and so that was my home. That was where I had all my gear stashed, you know, and and uh, so between trips or between whatever, I'd always go back to Big Sur. Yeah, and uh, some of my old buddies from the South Bay, L.A., had moved up to Big Sur. Right, and right. so I had a community already. And, um, so Big Sur is where you is, went from L.A. if you really wanted to get out there and go investigate, you know, find out about yourself or get out in this amazing nature kind of scene. That's where the excellence yeah. was. And there you were. Time at sea, you know, yeah. and other cultures and yeah. stuff like that. So I had a girlfriend hmm. who was not like my, my mate, but, uh, you know, a woman who I hung out with when I was in Big Sur. And she had met Ida Rolf. Um, at Esalen, right. and she was a she was a housekeeper at Esalen, uh -huh. and so she knew about Rolf because she cleaned Rolf's room when Rolf was in town. And <laughs> gotcha. she said, "Hey Jan, you know, there's this old lady who comes there, who teaches this kind of body work, and you ought to check it out." Yeah. Um, so I went to see Ida Rolf. I had never been touched therapeutically. Wow. None. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, I'd never had an acupuncture treatment, a massage, uh, nothing. Yeah. I wasn't that sort of, my culture didn't include that, uh -huh. you know, being a sailor and being a blue collar guy. It was like, I just didn't even think about it. So when I got my first I love your back. Set, I love your Zoom background, by the way. You're talking to us from, is that a, like a factory floor or something? Oh, it's, I, I pulled it off the internet. Yeah, it's, it's nice. Yes, it's, it's a warehouse. <laughs> it gives us that blue collar context. Okay, so there you are. Is this probably like 1970 or something? What must, what, 69 this is, or something? Uh, like that? 60, 68. 68, okay. Right uh, so back I'm there in the beginning. So, yep. So I got, I was, I was still in the merchant marine, but I would, when Ida, Ida Rolf would come to Big Sur, because she had been contracted to work on Fritz Perls right. because Fritz Perls was suffering angina. Yep. And we know, you know, Fritz Perls was a student of Sigmund Freud, one of that original gang with Wilhelm Reich and, yep. and Carl Jung and Bruno Bettelheim. And, and he, was, so, he was teaching there at the Rolf Institute and brought in Ida to work on him. Yep. And yep. Ida came down to work on Perls and Perls yep. said, Oh my God! Everybody who goes through psychotherapy should get some some of this rolfing because it releases the the body memories. Mm -hmm. And so at that moment, rolfing and the human potential movement 
found each other, and it was a you know it was a marriage of pretty diverse <laughs> backgrounds, right? Uh -huh. um, and so there was a sudden demand for rolfers. Yeah, and so I sort of knew that you know peripherally because if you live in Big Sur, you know what happens at Esalen. Um, so I asked Rolf. I said, "Hey, can you train me?" Uh, I'd probably had maybe six or seven sessions from her. And literally she rolled her eyes back and she shook her head and she said, you're a blue collar guy. How could you get into this kind of work? Yeah. You know, we, this is more professional and, and. She was you know? East coast blue blood versus blue collar Ivy league, uh, Columbia, PhD, etc. All, all of the above. So her, yeah. her answer to me was, Oh man. And so I being myself, I said, well, okay, um, I'm pretty good at fixing things. Uh -huh. um, you know, I have some natural ability at fixing things. I said, but what do you want me to do? And she, she said, oh, well, get a massage license so you can legally touch people and write me a little paper, like five, the interaction of five body systems so I know you can think. Okay, so I, I came down to L.A. and I went to the Pomona School of Massage. I just got to say, I'm sorry, I just got to say that that sounds like the prototype for the entrance requirements, the rest of us, uh, you know, based our life around when we we're at time to go to the Rolf Institute, those kind of things we did in an expanded form, perhaps. So you went to Pomona? Pomona School of Massage. Yeah. Little old ladies and, and guys, you know, elderly guys teaching Swedish massage, you know, hot packs, effleurage, potent, the classic Swedish. But anyway, I finished the course and they had, there was a California license that you needed to have education to get. So I got my California massage license. Yeah. And I showed up probably a year after that when Rolf was next in town. And I said, here's your paper, five body systems. Here's my license to practice. I can legally touch people. What do you think? And she said, Okay, I'm starting a class in October, November this year. You be there. That will be your auditing phase. So I went auditing. I had 10 weeks off, and then I did practitioning. If you she don't know, gone. auditing is where you basically observe her giving the training. You don't get to do much, right? You got to sit and watch other people learn and listen to her lectures. Yeah. But there's a unique part of rolfing, which is that it – depends on being able to see and the auditing was to was to heighten our ability to actually look at bodies and see what was going on even before you touch them yeah and you know still this is a marker for rolfing and for structural integration you know is this contour based diagnosis that isn't the only thing but by god you know how people shaped tells you a lot about what the nature of the structure is underlying the shape. Mm -hmm. How do they generate the shapes? Um, so, okay. So I went through six weeks of auditing. Um, Emmett Hutchins was in that class practicing. Yeah. Um, Mary Bond was there. Um, golly, who else? Uh, Giovanna DeAngelo. Uh, anyway, these are some of the old timers. Yeah. So, so, Christmas came, Ida went back east to see her family. She came back in end of January and we did the second six weeks in which I did practitioner training. 
So I had two models and we exchanged treatments with each other as part of the training. You know, she introduced session one, we'd do it to each other, the practitioners. The next day in came people from the community and she we worked under her, her supervision. And um, I think there were eight of us in the class and uh, Rolf did it without an assistant of any kind. It was just, that was it. Um, and, and I mean, this is a side note because I was handy, quote unquote, mm -hmm. she always assigned me to fix things that were broken around the house she was living in. <laughs> so <laughs> I would get a flat of flowers from the nursery and put flowers by the garden paths and fix the Venetian blinds and get a snake and run the plumbing. And, you know, so <laughs> I was that her was handyman. Your, that and, was your pitch. I can fix things, you said. And you I, took I that could role. fix things and she said, oh, fix this, you know, fix that. Um, which, which was a pretty much a consistent part of our relationship, um, you know, over the years when I would show up, she would say, oh, come to my house. I need, you know, the table rocks. Can you shim it up? And, you know, all that small stuff. <laughs> Do you think that gave you a different perspective on the work? Because I'm just thinking about, you know, there's this emphasis on we're not about fixing things. And yet that was your pitch. And you had this different perspective that she saw something in and says, let's, you know, let's try this. It's a good question, Till. And, and uh, it, it really centers around, like, I think I was the only blue collar guy who came to that training. Yeah. Uh, the rest of these guys were all uh, psychologists, a couple of medical doctors who are phasing out of being doctors and wanted more personal, you know, like Jack Downing, uh -huh. uh, Hector Prestera. Yeah. Uh, People with heavy duty psychology, body psychology backgrounds, things like that. Yeah. Medical doctors. Right. PhD psychologists. Yep. The people who were hanging around Esalen who were inspired to train in rolfing. Yes. And here I came and I still had grease under my fingernails, you know. Uh -huh. You know this. <laughs> so it wasn't just the culture difference, which is that because I came out of in my when I was in a sailor, I was both a, a deck and engine department. So I was familiar with the way things fit together, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, hell, we'd have these big diesel engines, the, the pistons were so big that you could get inside the cylinder and squat. Wow. And take up, you know, but I had a sense of the mechanics of things when I got there. Yeah. And so I was always curious, you know, well, if the structure is organized this way and you want to move it over <clears> there, <throat> what are the elements you're going to have to deal with? So I, it wasn't so much fix it as how does it work and how do I make, why does rolfing work? Why did the first hour just do that? Um, it wasn't enough to say, follow the recipe and you'll get the change. I always wanted to know why it worked. Um, I always wanted to open the hood and look under it and go, you know, how does this baby run, you know? Well, I'm going to take out my mental highlighter and color that one green, let's say, or something, because uh, what I heard about, I didn't audit or practition with you, but as I was doing that and we're talking about the different teachers, Jan Sultan was the guy you went to if you wanted to understand the... If you see this, then you do that. If you want the clearest, most uh, tangible ways to do the work, Jan was the guy you studied with. And so there was, you know, 
maybe elsewhere you were emphasizing the whole picture or the value of intuition or getting your rational mind out of the way and letting the relationships emerge. Jan was the guy you went to if you wanted the real tangible kind of nuts and bolts stuff. I think that's true. And, yeah. and um, it put me at odds with some other people who were my contemporaries in the training who were more interested in the cycle, you know, the, the somatic and psychological unfolding, which is what, what Fritz Perls had pointed to. Yeah. Um, there were other people who were interested in some kind of metaphysical, um, you know, the sanctity of the one through 10, uh, the recipe itself had a metaphysical structure that would open certain uh, experiential doorways. Uh-huh. And I said, well, how do you get the foundation in and what are the building blocks that you use? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Somebody once said there were three of us who Ida were her, her first advanced teachers: uh-huh. Peter Melkier, Emmett Hutchins, and me. Yeah. And she brought Peter and Emmett forward first, and I was the next one. And she said, "Jan, you're going to be my Mason." The Mason. <laughs> Emmett was the mystic mathematician. Peter was the poet, poet humanist, and you were the Mason. That's the way. It, that's the way it's structured. And we, the three of us talked about that yeah. and that was like okay cool right. you know you do that right. you do this we respected each other we worked together well uh, it's i don't know you know what this is like to listen to if you're not in the structure integration world but that really what you've just described there is a tension you could say or a dialectic or just a paradox within the field of how do we get really specific and tangible about things and still make room for the big picture and the larger relationships and oftentimes you're talking about personality differences oftentimes it comes out as either one or the other and there's camps that have divided and big divisions in our field that have happened around these questions in some ways they're going on today yeah um so the answer is yes that's exactly right um but at the time that when we were in that formation, we didn't have a lot of internal conflict about that. Oh. We were actually happy to be three three minds looking at Ida's work and having been essentially chosen and said, here, you carry this forward. And we looked at each other and said, okay, we're a team. Uh, and that held for many years until, well, there began to be tensions. And, you know, I can, I'll skip all that. You know, it was just the normal you know, strong founder dies and the the students kind of get to pulling on the thing, you know, and chewing yeah. at it and yeah. divisions happen, you know. That's right. So, yeah, we'll skip all that. That's right. Just as we do. That was when I was assisting my first class with Tom Myers. All this was coming down to a lot of blood on the tracks in ways and just difficult times. And yeah. unfortunately, a lot of healing in the decades since. But yeah, this it led to some difficult divisions and and um, probably philosophical um, differences that make up the diversity of the field. So in a good way, there's that whole breadth going on still. Yeah, and um, at, when I uh, finished training, Esalen Institute was running what was called their residential program, yes. where people would come for several months right. and attend psychology and spiritual development, and they'd learn massage. And part of that was they would go through a 10 series of rolfing. Uh So Peter Melchior and I were the rolfers for the Esalen residential program. Nice. And so I had probably room 23 (laughs) up on the rolf row or something like that. Yeah. 
I you did that. I was there. I was just, I didn't know this about you, Jan. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I was there as the resident rolfer in the late '80s, early '90s, following a decade or half later in your footsteps in a way. Well, I left there in uh, the spring of '71. Okay, um, so this is like yeah, a decade and a half, almost two yeah. decades later. Yeah. But anyway, Peter and I decided we would alternate sessions on these people. So he would do one, I'd do two, he, you know, back and forth. And in between we, and this was by agreement. This was not, this was completely transparent. We'd get to talk about the cases and what did you see about that person? And, you know, they had that fourth hour. Where did you see that it went? And were there any difficulties? And, you know, were there emergent themes with uh, different clients? So it it was a unique and wonderful moment to step into a full practice with a, I mean, Peter had trained the year before me, so he had a little bit more experience. You know, he'd, he'd taken a few people through a 10 series and uh, it was it was utterly wonderful. You know, I got respected for being a rolfer. I didn't have to worry, you know, I was like, you know, it was like part of the team. So that was really wonderful. And uh, what do you, I mean, before I, I just want to catch this up a little bit, but before I do, what do you think about what was Ida doing or what were the group of you doing that, that uh, had such a lasting impression you think on the field? Because there's, there's dozens of derivatives now. There's a bunch of us who went through the Rolf Institute, either just studied there or taught there like uh, myself, Eric Dalton, Tom Myers, Art Riggs, Judith Aston, who all, have a you know our one of our core branches being right there in that world with Ida Rolf. What was she doing, or what were you guys doing that ended up making this so influential and persistent? Okay, so this is my opinion. I don't I don't want to represent this as fact for sure. Okay. All right. Um, I think that at the time that Rolf came into human potential movement, a the human potential movement was in its very nascent beginning. You know, it had just formed, and and but it was it did have spiritual elements and psychological elements mm. and even physical through yoga and you know conditioning things like this and <coughs> but there was there was only neo reikian work was the major way that rolfing or excuse me that psychology and body work intersected mm-hmm. and so rolf gave this very we were new we were potent. It was hands-on. And so in terms of American culture, it was dramatic because most of us were virgin in terms of body work. Anyway, so people would, would see rolfing and go, you can actually improve your function by going through a series of treatments. And it might be spiritual if you were a meditator or a, a, a seeker. Uh-huh. It might be psychological if you were trying to resolve personal conflicts and historic bits yeah and 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 people showed who were deeply uh disabled you know post-traumatic injuries blunt trauma uh-huh. uh the vietnam war was going on we were getting veterans coming out of the service you know who were who were in what we now know was ptsd you know it was just yes. shock and high arousal yeah. helping people get back into their skins you know like okay okay yeah. i made it um so I think it was a matter of of it of the perfect storm in a weird way, uh-huh. you know. 
Rolf arrived at a moment where she was needed, yeah, and her yeah. work had been gestating already 20 or 25 years out in the boonies, you know, teaching her stuff to chiropractors and osteopaths, and she'd been to Japan and was interacting with, you know, let's say traditional oriental medicine. I don't know what she was doing in Japan, actually. I never found out. But it was partly connected to how manual therapy and acupuncture fit together mm -hmm. and oriental theory, you know, somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think she was just the right place, right time, beautiful confluence of mm -hmm. elements and bam. Um, and we, ended up catalyzing or gathering people around her who were really interesting people as well and carried the work forward. And then I, I certainly count it as one of my biggest blessings to later have been involved in that yeah. you know, and benefit from all that association as well. Yeah. So I think I think there isn't a real easy answer to that. Yeah. Um, I've heard a lot. I want to say a couple of things about Rolf's background and then we can move on. Yeah. Um, she was fairly closed mouths about her origins. Sources. Uh -huh. Well, how, how did you figure this out? You know, well, uh, she wouldn't say anything. Yeah. She was reluctant, you know, yeah. and there was some some stuff with Mabel Todd, who was an osteopath who had developed a movement kind of work. Uh -huh. There was, uh, uh, oh, heck, I'm forgetting some names. Anyway, um, she said in class, and I have it in my notes, she said, I originally developed Rolfing as an orthopedic adjunct. Fascinating. That this is a way to help people rehabilitate or to put themselves back together after, you know, healing from orthopedic needed injuries, you know, problems, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or developmental problems with kids. Uh -huh. She loved to work with kids with spinal curvatures and right. those sort of things. So orthopedic adjunct was her, uh, that's what she'd put out there. Uh -huh. Later we hear that she was, she had a mystical vision where she was back in ancient Egypt and, came upon some ritual preparation for entering a, a temple as an acolyte. Uh -huh. And uh, those rumors went around. You got your hands on your heads, by the way, for the, for the listeners. <laughs> I was, mind you, being a blue-collar guy, uh -huh. <laughs> basically a sailor. I just listened to that stuff and just went, oh, yeah. Okay, well, um, I'm interested in orthopedic adjunct, actually. Okay. And I'm interested in an adjunct to psychotherapy, you know, that if you're bound up with rage or fear and you've been traumatized, we can help by getting the body organized. Hmm. But in terms of this initiation into mystical orders and things like that, I just wasn't that interested, honestly. You uh -huh. know, I mean, yeah. I wasn't I didn't put everybody down. It was just like, I don't get it. Uh, you know, one of my. I keep remembering this. I got to ask you now that I got the chance. I remember in one of my advanced trainings, you said the most important move in rolfing was this: looking at your watch. <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean, do you remember saying anything like that? Is that was my memory accurate? Yes, and I'll tell right. you why. Okay. Because there is, especially if you're going into these, let's say, less. Um, Less clear realms, psychology, uh -huh. spiritual experiences, trance induction, uh, that it's very easy to, to find that your booked time, which in those days would be like an hour and a half, 
was burned up and you were not done with the work you were doing, but you had to kick the client out because your next person was waiting in the waiting room. And so part of my training was to say, divide the work into three segments. Your opening, you get your middle part where you're doing all that stuff, and your closure. And you have to start the closure 15 minutes before the session. The time of the session is up. Yeah. Or you're forever going to be running behind, and that's not a good feeling. Yes. So I basically collared them, you know, and said, and when practitioners were working on each other, I said, you guys can take as long as you want. As long as, you know, we can be here till six or seven, and but I want you to take the time you need. But when the models are here, when the class clients are coming, you are going to have them out the door on time, and I'm going to crack the whip. And that was the... That was the pointing at the watch thing. I remember that clearly. That was just the thing I needed to hear because coming from the Esalen background that I did, we were taking, you know, uh, we were trying to stop time. We were trying to make time disappear, which sometimes took a while on the clock. And yet your point of staying grounded in ordinary consciousness in some part of me to have at least a perspective and understand what was left to do, where I wanted to go, was just the thing I needed to hear at that time and was actually really influential. It was systematic, like you're going to open, yeah. you're going to do the basic stuff that you've identified, uh-huh. and then you're going to close and integrate. Right. And every session has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end was the harder, was the hardest part, you know? Mm-hmm. It was easy to jump in and swim, right? but all of a sudden, how do you stop? How do you stop, and how do you bring something back that's useful from that yeah. little adventure? That's great. Yeah, so... You, uh, you, one more thing that's just on my wish list. I just wanted to acknowledge you as an early adopter of online education, whether you think about that for yourself or not. You joined me in an experiment on teaching teleco- teleconference classes. This was like 2000. I probably proposed it to you in 1999. Yeah. Where I was trying to figure out how to do this distance learning thing in our field. And all the only technology, the best technology we had then was conference calls. So you ended up teaching two really masterful and popular classes on conference calls, and you know through crackly recordings and all sorts of uh, you know. And we did technology. we did like each one of those was like five or six That's right. meetings. That's right. Uh, yeah, that was good. It helped me a lot too to organize my thinking, to teach without a group of people there. Yeah. Like just speak into a, the room I was sitting in, yeah. you know. Right. No, it's it's so different. And we, you were right there when we were figuring a lot of that stuff out. I remember, just you know, all sorts of fallpas. And I remember the, the guy who was in the Pakistani networking group kind of calling in in the middle of our conference call. He had the wrong number or something, and we had to like get him off the call. Eric Dalton remembered reminded me of that not too long ago. He says he listened to his old recordings and he heard. This guy come in. This isn't the Pakistani networking group. Okay, sorry everybody, but uh, we figured it out, and it was it was great in the end. Okay, Jen, uh, you got COVID. Yep. And uh, we should get that out of the way. I believe you were vaccinated. Is that right? Double vaccinated the February before I got it. Yeah. Um, I. I worked during the pandemic because my wife is a chiropractor and we share an office. And so as soon as vaccination was available, boom, we both got it because we were uh, allowed to keep the office open. Right. 
and we kept masks on and cleaned the surfaces and the doorknobs and we had air purifiers running and we ran our practice full bore for that five months yeah. until that February or till that November. Hmm. And I had, I have business up in New Mexico. I live now, now in uh, LA, mm-hmm. but I own real estate and some other stuff up there. So I had to make a trip to New Mexico. Hmm. The first time I went, I drove because mm-hmm. I didn't want to touch anything. And I had my food box in the car. Right. I had my pickup truck so I could sleep in the back. And, you know, I up there and back. Moving lockdown. And But this time I decided to fly. And so I flew up to Albuquerque. And five days after I was on that airplane, I got a, I broke a cold kind of weird sweat. And I thought, oh, shit. And boom, down I went. And I know I got it off the ventilation system in the airplane, even as I was masked Mm. and I had on an industrial safety glass, you know, to protect my eyes from saliva or airborne stuff. And and I had the boosters weren't available yet. Mm -hmm. And so, man, I mean, 1st of November, I was at the ER. I was having trouble breathing. They admitted me. I was two weeks in the hospital. Um, I was getting worse. By the fifth day I was in the hospital, the doc was saying, if you don't begin to oxygenate better, we're going to have to intubate you. We're going to, you know, put you into sedation. We're going to intubate you and breathe for you. And I had a very strong intuition that if I ended up being intubated, I wasn't coming back. Um, I and just the statistics support that, yeah. Yeah, they do, but I felt it like, oh, right. geez. So that's when I had my epiphany with with my uh, immune system, mm-hmm. and uh, it's worth telling because it's very germane to other questions about this. Mm-hmm. I'll keep it short. It was on the border of being a mystical experience. Um, but I've aged, so I accept that kind of stuff better now. <laughs> that means a lot coming from <laughs> me. I was going to say that's great. <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> so one evening, fifth day, I've been told, you know, we're going to intubate you probably tomorrow. Uh-huh. My oxygen, w- blood oxygen was hanging in the low 80s, even though I had oxygen here and uh, steroids in the arm and antibiotics. And oh, man. So I, that's, so I started thinking about the immune system. And I thought, okay, the immune system is basically binary. It's either on or it's off. It's either me or it's not me. And it goes from micro to macro. It's intrapersonal. You meet somebody, you go, not me, baby. I'm a little oh, light, but I don't want to get to know you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be the common cold. You know, your body whiffs something that's not right, and the immune system goes, that's not us. So this was the first layer. Yeah. The next layer was the cytokine storm, which was going full bore with me. My right lung was full of fluid, um, and I knew my immune system was kicked on, you know, like boom, boom. And so I realized this was my immune system was driven by not me, God damn it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, it, and it was humping up as much energy as it could, you know, to meet this challenge. And I realized that... And I thought back to the the polyvagal theory and, you know, Stanley Rosenberg's popularized version of it, Stephen Porges complexity, but the essence was 
the vagus has two primary layers of response, dorsal vagal, which is fight and flight, mm -hmm. and ventral vagal, which is feed and breed, comfort, uh, digestion, connect, etc. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I thought to myself, oh, dorsal vagal is on full bore here, tied with this immune response. Now, this is me just laying in bed, okay? I don't have any science, and I'm not Googling anything. <laughs> I'm just laying there Go. how am I going to get through this? Yeah. And so I put myself into a kind of meditative state. Finally, the, you know, the staff split, you know, and I pulled the blankets up to my chin, and the monitor was up here where I could see it, and I started bringing my pulse down. And when my pulse hit about 50, I went kind of into this deep altered state and I relaxed. I mean, I felt it go through me like, okay, okay, this is cool. And the nurse popped in, she was out in the hall and she came in and she said, are you okay? You know, we monitor <clears throat> your pulse is pretty low. And I said, I'm good. I have the button here. If I get scared or something, I'll hit it, but I'm, 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 I'm relaxing. Nice. So I got down in there. She left. And I just kept going and I watched my pulse drop into the high 40s. And then this, if you know how on a cloudy day, if you're looking at the sea, when the sun comes, just hits the horizon, it opens like that. Yeah, that opens sideways. Well, this, yeah. this was like the doorway that I stood in. Uh, and it was this amazing pink color. Huh. And I I was kind of shocked, you know, but I was, I was grooving, you know, I'm... So what came with the pink was this huge wave of gratitude uh, and joy. Hmm. And it was strong enough that even I had a reflective part of my, you know, I was watching it happen. Hmm. And I thought, I've never felt this thankful in my life. Hmm. I have never been here before. And then the next part of it was, oh, you're at death's door. That's why that, that feeling, other people report this. This is not the gratitude of getting better. This is at the trough of your symptoms. Right, right at yeah. the bottom. Yeah. Nope. And so, I, and then it was just like, go with it, go with it, go with it. Don't hold out nothing. Mm. And so I, I was in there for a while. I don't know how long. Finally, somebody came in the room to take blood and brought me back out of the trance. So for the next four days, I, I went into this place every time I was alone. Nice. I just, because once I knew how to do it, it was like, oh, I don't know how to go there. <laughs> so the, the fifth day, I think, or the fourth day, I was in it. It was 3.30 in the morning because I did glance up at the monitor. And it pop, it broke. And all of a sudden, I could hear like all the way down the hall. Huh. I could hear people talking like, way out there yeah and all these smells you know like i pulled the mask aside and i could smell the room and i realized wow. i'm over it yeah, i'm it's gonna a, get well the tide turned and what had happened was my immune system had backed down uh, because i had managed the fear by going into this place yeah and i was not in that uh fight flight zone uh -huh. so I had reinforcement after that the next couple of days, one of the nurses said, you know, it's really great to work with you because you're easy. We have people we have to sedate because when they start getting uh, oxygen deficient, they begin to panic and they try yes. to get out of bed. 
Yes. And they're yelling, you know. Anxiety uh, goes uh, up. Right. Absolutely. So, and and she said, you're pretty mellow, you know. You were going into the pink. You were going into the gratitude zone. I was in the pink in the gratitude. Yeah. And, and this is why I say it was a gift wrapped in thorns, too. Uh, I don't know that I ever would have found this on my own. Hmm. Um, but what's emerging now, I'm about five months down the road from that November I am way kinder than I've ever been. Hey. And I can tell my wife says, wow, Jan, you're easy. <laughs> you know, and I see it, I'm driving and some jerk, you know, passes me on the right and cuts off, you know, and it was the kind of thing that would arouse me before. Yes. And now it's just like, oh, good. We didn't hit, you know, you didn't clip my fender. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> All right. Everybody who knew Jan Sultan before heard it right here. <laughs> he's nicer that's amazing i can tell that's awesome yeah um you know just some attitudinal part of me just just packed the bags and left wow. and left me in a way a little bit stunned you know like yes how, well now i gotta reform i mean reform my yeah stuff I, like that reform your what your identity your way of being your what yeah way of being you know yeah. So, okay, so there's, so now we're in this COVID story. Okay. So at the end of two weeks, you know, I'm on a, at this point, I'm on an oxygen cannula, okay. five liters per hour. I'm, you know, I'm not on the thermovent, which was a full face mask that was hydrating the water and, okay. you know, 100% oxygen. So this is less. Yeah. And they basically said, look, you know, you can go home now. We've done what we can do for you. Mm. You're going to be on oxygen for a while. But you, theoretically, you should recover. Okay. So they dismiss me from the hospital. They send me home with the oxygen. And uh, I'm, I'm not even home 24 hours, and I have my first episode of tachycardia. Mm. I had not had it in the hospital. Which is an elevated, uncontrolled heartbeat. Heart, your heart pulse rate just goes up. High heartbeat yep. and uh, with very little stimulus. I mean, I could have... But if I simply sat up in the bed hmm. and I began to sit up really slow, but I couldn't get away from it. And if I had to get up to pee, it was like a safari, you know, because my pulse would go high, high and my oxygen would plummet. And so I'm still getting over the safari analogy. So it's just like, <laughs> is this like a big adventure or what? Just get yes. a major. Event. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And I finally, uh, well, not finally soon. I said to, I said, I need another, I need, 50, 60 feet of tubing to uh -huh. go from this oxygen generator to my cannula so that I could finally make my way out to the back porch. But I'd have to literally hold on to the furniture as I went, you know, because I was equal. I had disequilibrium. Yeah. I had high pulse and yeah. my oxygen was low. I was on the, on the, you know, I was on the edge of uh, syncope, syncope mm -hmm. and uh, syncope. Mm -hmm. And so, Oh, wow. Anyway, I asked my providers, I asked my pulmonologist, what do you do here? How do I get out of this? When am I going to be able to get rid of the cannula? Why is my heart going crazy? And the, the, the pulmonologist said, that's because your lung has water in it and you, you know, your heart thinks that it's not getting enough air. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no. Didn't no, sound right. That's yeah. not right. Hmm. Um, instinctively, I felt that. Now, mind you, I'm at the pulmonologist in a wheelchair because I can't walk from the car 
to the office, I, I'm, I run out of air. Mm-hmm. So my wife is wheeling me in the wheelchair. And uh, so I realize you're on your own, dude. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna get through this, it's, it's you. Their so explanations is, didn't make sense to you. They didn't have things to offer you. Nothing you're on your own. Nothing to offer. Mm-hmm. So, I this was my thinking till um, you and I talked a little bit about this anaerobic question, and I, I'm going to use the word, but I understand it's not the common use of the word. Mm-hmm. I, I began to think that the the tachycardia was not about a high oxygen demand, which would make your pulse go up. The tachycardia is is not aerobic. Like if I were lifting some weights, I would begin to get out of breath and I would start to breathe harder. Mm-hmm. That's aerobic. High demand, pulse goes up. But tachycardia is characterized as, this is how I experienced it, mm-hmm. by lower stroke volume and higher speed. Mm-hmm. So normal pulses squish, fill, squish, fill. Tachycardia is... <laughs> but it wasn't an arrhythmia. It was the timing was correct. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't. It wasn't it's super fast. Emptying and filling correctly. Yeah, you know? right. So I began to say that's anaerobic, and it's different from the pulse of an exercise, which is aerobic. Okay. Um, this was just for my own understanding. So I began to do these exercises where I would sit and stand up from my chair and then sit down again. And I had on my little oximeter, um, which is pulse and oxygen and blood oxygen. On your finger there, monitor your blood, o- blood right. oxygen. Yeah. Well, I'd pop up and down out of this chair. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. my pulse is going ski up here at 120. But I said, no, I'm going to do 15 sit stands here, God damn it. And then I will sit here and let my pulse normalize. So over you know i'd sit there for two three minutes and then the pulse would begin to come down anaerobic you know tachycardia pulse is still up here but it's fluttering Mm -hmm. so this is one piece of it that's really important Mm -hmm. is that i I figured out how to get my aerobic pulse to come up under the tachycardia and gradually and train with it and bring them down together and this was this was like discovering a new kind of yoga I can't because nobody instructed me how to do this. I figured, okay, so that was that's one whole piece of it. The second piece is that I found a site on Google, a YouTube, a guy named Patrick McEwen. And -hmm. you and I had a little talk about this. Mm -hmm. McEwen took the work of this Russian physiologist whose name is Buteko and and brought it into contemporary use. And he found Buteko because he was an asthmatic and he was having a lot of trouble breathing and eventually ended up with this Russian guy who taught him how to breathe differently, conquered his asthma. So McEwen took that basic work and built a site called Oxygen Advantage, which is a YouTube site. And so the first time I opened Oxygen Advantage, here is Patrick McEwen, and he is a very mellow, soft-spoken guy, gray eyes, a very easy countenance, probably in his middle 40s. Nice Irish lilt to his And a nice speech. cadence to his speaking. Yeah. You know, and turns out he's talked to Vim, Vim Hoff, you know, the Iceman. 
He's talked to that other guy who wrote the book on breathing, Nelson, or mm. uh, can't think of his name. I know who you're talking about. I can't think of it either. Yep. Uh huh. So th the first time I found him was two thirty in the morning. I had been mm. having a hell of a time breathing. I couldn't sleep. And I got McEwen on the screen and he described a simple breathing exercise, which I did. And in about 20 minutes, I got my, I began to settle and my blood oxygen went up, my pulse came down and I went, oh, thank God. But there's a, a fundamental part of McEwen's work that we have got to understand. Tell us. It is counterintuitive. That every other person who works with breathing tries to make you breathe deep. Exercise your diaphragm. Maximize capacity. Yep. Gas Get your VO max up. jacked up and, you know, mm -hmm. exhale the carbon dioxide, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. McEwen's method and, and Buteco's before him was to breathe so lightly that there was almost no air exchange. And, and he used nose, the analogy yeah. of putting a feather at your nose. Mm -hmm. And you want to breathe so softly that the feather doesn't move. Well, the outcome of that is that after a moment or two, and I say moment, not even minute, you begin to get an oxygen. And so your body wants to take a big breath. And McEwen says, no. What happens is you breathe just enough to ride that oxygen demand and what happens is you in your saliva, you start to generate NO, nitric oxide. And the NO goes into the bronchi, and the bronchi go, and the bronchi dilate under the NO. Um, and NO is a very interesting transitory compound that we make when we're younger, you know, like all the other things. <laughs> And its its control is over smooth muscle activity, so digestive peristalsis, um, you know, heart rate, heart, you know, the literal rhythm of the heart contracting. Yep. So this breathing method helped the body generate NO, which relaxed the bronchi and made them dilate, which increased the capacity to breathe. So I got to say, this is genius it was so beautiful and, and it helped uh, oh you you felt better well here's what happened was i put mm -hmm. together my sit stand and my my trying to bring my aerobic pulse up underneath the tachycardia in order to bring them down together one of the features of of uh, of the oxygen advantage breathing is that you only breathe through your nose not through your mouth Mm -hmm. So when you get an oxygen demand, you don't shift and go, <sighs> you keep nose breathing. And um, so they've been able to prove that if you do this restricted breathing, that you get this NO dump, which increases, which is bronchodilators. Mm -hmm. So your lungs dilate. You got more surface area for the blood to transfer the gases. So your efficiency goes way up. But uh, the other part was that he did some experiments, this is years before, with Olympic-level athletes. Mm -hmm. And they found that after it took five to six weeks of doing this breathing, where they got 20% more volume. This is in already highly competent, well-trained athletes. 
20%. Oh my God. And if I remember, I mean, I just, I just, I got to put in the other side of the conversation, which is uh, we need to be careful about recommending certain protocols or, you know, approaches or things like that, just in being responsible as public speakers here. So I got to put in that disclaimer. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. And then there's... uh, Don't try this without your doctor. Something like that. Right. And then who knows what the uh you know and who knows what's going on but there's some interesting explanations for the thing you experienced which was an improvement in your tachycardia and a big change in your ability to move and stand and do things but through that graded exposure approach of just increasing you the amount of load you had but but keeping your breath at a fairly low level yeah in, in o being patrick McEwen's one of his uh, mechanisms but it seems that it does for whatever reason i'm he has a spatial. Again, I'm I'm cursorily familiar with it. I'm not an expert at all in his approach, but he has a spatial uh, explanation saying that nose breathing is intrinsically more efficient and does all kinds of other benefits. And and yet, uh, as I read into it, it seems like one of the primary mechanisms too is just increased efficiency of using what you get. You get your body, your lungs, et cetera, your bloodstream gets much more efficient at scavenging oxygen from the breath you got. And so you don't need to breathe as hard. You end up being much more efficient no matter what circumstances you're in. It it's completely fits because among yeah. other things, I got we have to we have to stay with this for a few minutes till because there's some gold in here. Mm. One of the things that Buteco developed this for was asthma. COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disorders, people who had worked in the mines, you know, and had had their breath shortened up because of exposure to toxic gases and panic disorders. Mm -hmm. And so when I got, when I heard panic disorders, I realized how I felt when I would get tachycardia was my first thing was I'm scared. Mm -hmm. Oh, God damn, this is not easy this it doesn't hurt it's frightening not to be able to breathe it's like somebody put their a pillow over your face and you start kicking and and trying to get out from under which is the thing i had to defeat in the hospital in order to get into the pink that's right so so this this is important because that's an oxygen deficiency this is why i called it anaerobic Uh because this has got to be vagal this is not uh, you know, blood, uh, CO and CO2. This is a different mechanism that kicks this tachycardia off. And it's tied into this arousal about this oxygen deficiency, which brings us into a panic state. And this isn't rational. This is this is down in the basement somewhere. That's right. You know, this is lizard level stuff. When you don't um, get oxygen, your your physiology takes over in many ways now. Yeah, you kick in. So yeah. so it was the it was the um, panic disorders mm-hmm. that helped me link this to the to the COVID. And Patrick is wonderful. He said, you know, I did all this groundwork before COVID was here. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the work I did is exactly right for helping people recover from post-COVID long haul, particularly, uh, that it was a perfect fit. There's a common element in what you're describing there that fits with so many other approaches to difficulty, too, which is tolerating uh, discomfort, tolerating 
difficulty being willing to hang out with that moment of like I'm standing up, my heart is racing, I'm not going to let myself suck air, I'm going to slow it down and stay with that difficult moment. And that's what shifts the capacity. Well, so uh, one of if, if people are interested, when you get into this site, Oxygen Advantage, mm-hmm. there are probably 25 or 30 uh, clips of Patrick taking people in different exercises. And one of the things he says is, interestingly enough, he said, this actually teaches you how to meditate. And it has none of the trappings of Hindu philosophy or, you know, connecting the the Ida Pingala, you know, the balancing. He said, but when you start regulating your breathing like this, you enter yogic states. And I thought, God, is this ever true? You know, that I would sit there at four o'clock in the morning, cross-legged, and I just set the timer on my phone for 20 minutes, and then I go and breathe for 20 minutes, just sitting there in the dark. Mm. And I get into these wonderful... <laughs> you know, deep and quiet. My wife is laying there beside me. She's breathing. The door's cracked open. I can hear the traffic on the road, you know, down there. Mm. And it's and I'm in a blissful state. Mm. And the bliss is a healing energy. And it also detunes the survival stuff, the dorsal vagal, which is, which is jacked when you're sick like this. You know, because mm-hmm. indeed you've got a mortal illness. You can die from this. Yeah. And the body doesn't forget that for a minute. Yeah. So anyhow. Well, thank you, Jen. That's I mean, that's uh that's quite a story. And you um it's you found the method, you found the explanations for yourself that made sense. You trusted your experience and uh, really cultivated that. And I think you you kind of did full circle with this. You got to the place that where I mean, one of the things that's helping me get older is this idea of tolerating discomfort just a little more, not going into my instinctual uh, panic (laughs) around whatever the discomfort is and just hanging out, slowing my breath, perhaps relaxing into it. So so this is aging gracefully from, you know, that original question, you know, like, how are we going to do this? Uh, You know, you're on the off ramp at this point. I mean, you're what now, 64? Off ramp. Here we are. Oh, I'm sixty. Uh, what am I? Sixty one. But still. So when you're eighty, yeah, you're already just looking over the fence and looking around and going, "I might have ten or twelve more years." Yeah, I can't count on that. Right. Um. So okay. So let's see. I had some notes. Or can we close on this piece for now? Absolutely. Um. This is about long haul COVID. Okay. Um. Couple things here. Uh, one of the okay, so we we know that now the CDC has uh, officially labeled long haul COVID as a disability, which mm-hmm. means that you can get government assistance if you're diagnosed and all of that. Mm-hmm. A couple things this means. One is it means millions of people have this. <laughs> this is not just a few of us. This is a lot of people who have had it. Apparently, the the research that's gradually catching up now, because now we're in the third year of this horror, is it doesn't matter how bad you had it when you were sick, you can still have very strong post-long-haul uh, symptoms. Yeah. So they made a list of the symptoms, which I jotted down just for fun. Oh, just for fun, yeah. And the first one was taste and smell. Mm-hmm. That So this is olfactory and and 
I want to say glossopharyngeal cranial nerves primarily. Um, and oh, and, and spinal accessory, uh, cranial 11, and so, and cranial one, which is olfactory. So, what that told us is that this disease affects the brain both functionally and in terms of volume. Because now they're starting to do, I don't know what kind of study, where EKG, I guess it would be, or, um, but the brain is actually changing shape as well as losing functions. So taste and smell. So I got some essences like eucalyptus, uh, cinnamon, um, mint, and I've been sniffing them. And I just sniffed the thing for five minutes, each one a split between each nostril. And I separate the, I don't do them all at the same time. I do cinnamon an hour later. I do eucalypt. An hour later, I do mint. And you know what? I'm starting to smell better. You're giving yourself an olfactory workout? Is that what you're doing? It, just like that, like taking my, my, my olfactory nerve to the gym <laughs> and breathing strong enough smells that, you know, that they burn through in a way. Uh -huh. And I noticed this morning when I got my coffee and I, I got here and I went, well, that's some good coffee. And then I went, I haven't been smelling my coffee. Wow. So this is, I hope that everybody hears this. You know, this, mm -hmm. this, I can't say that because it was true for me, it would be true for everybody. You know, mm -hmm. that'd be a fool's errand. But I want to say that I have been getting real functional change by breathing these highly concentrated tincture smells. You know, and you can get these at any health food store. Um, you're against the value. You're talking about the N of one effect where just because it worked with you doesn't mean that it's going to work with everybody, but it's so, it's been so important for you. And the, I get having been sick myself at different times, I get that uh, the compelled, the feeling of being compelled to share this and really let people know there's some tools out there to make themselves better. Yeah. So there's that. And then let's see here. Um, concentration and brain fog. Yeah. This is real. This is not just a metaphor. Mm -hmm. This leaves people with it, it being very difficult to think. <clears throat> so, and this tied into aging, you know, that as I've aged, I've also had a little more trouble thinking. You don't say, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they, you know, and they say, oh, if you're aging, you should, you know, um, take up a foreign language, also brain gym, you know. <clears throat> so I found a site on YouTube that teaches you how to play boogie woogie piano. And it's real <laughs> simple stuff, you know, left hand nice. plays three chords, right hand does a little riff. Uh -huh. <clears throat> so I got, I went on YouTube and I downloaded some lessons and I got an electric piano, which I've had around here for a while. And I'm starting to play this, these tunes for my, for my brain. <laughs> my effing brain yes <laughs> and um and you know i'm and and uh, my son studied speaks spanish pretty well he's at college so we made a deal to do all our texting in spanish as a second way to help dad's brain search for words and and get more exercise to get up so, out of the chair sit back down same same thing mm -hmm. so music and language yeah 
you know, which would say basically to a to a long haul victim, quit looking for the doctors to fix you, buddy. Mm. Get your ass out of bed, start working, smell some smell some smells, study a language, uh, do what you you know you you can actually regain a lot if you if you do some work. Take some action. <clears throat> find something that stretches you. Yep. Hang with it. Um, those sounds like those sound like enjoyable things too. I don't mind menthol. And, I don't mind coffee. So oh, you would so piano. Those all sound all right. Yeah. Speaking of coffee, so one of the things that happens is very disrupted sleep patterns, and everybody reports it. Right. You know, sleep for two hours, have to get up. Um, so I decided, well, when I'm that kind of awake, I get up. I just get up and I put on my sweats, and I go and I make a cup of coffee. And I sit down at my computer or I'm doing a writing an article or something I want to study or I go yeah. in the garage and mess around with my piano until I begin to get actually tired being up, right. not laying in bed, tossing and turning and trying and trying and blah, 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 but uh-huh. bam, get up, stop, stop that, yeah. do something. And what happens is that I recycle pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Then I can go back to bed, pull the covers over my ears and gone and i get two three more hours well you take you take the energy up you follow the energy use the energy and then it can resolve and then you're yeah 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 Yeah. and what's happening now is that i am getting longer sleep like i'm wake up at 4 30 i take a leak i may take one round of the house you know and go well i turn on the kettle you know to it's an electric kettle to make my coffee and then i go no go back to bed and i get back in bed and bang i'm out so I'm getting it to work better. And I can see that in another month or two, I'll be sleeping. I'll be sleeping four and five hours at a stretch. And I'll probably be getting six or seven hours total. Um, and I do have to nap midday, almost like you, you either lie down or you're going to fall down. Kind of, I got to sleep. Um, you're telling my story, by the way, of dealing with chronic Lyme. It, that's the one thing it did. It totally disrupted my sleep. But being able to follow the rhythm like that, to go for activity when I was awake, and then let myself get tired and have the freedom to go for the tiredness when I felt that, has uh, that's been profound. It's been a fr- and my sleep patterns are still like nobody else's. I do, and you wouldn't believe my schedule if I told you too. But they, I get enough sleep, and it's awesome. Well, we probably are doing something similar in that yes. way. Yes. Well, one other piece of the of the sleep regulation is that sometimes that fatigue would hit when I was driving. Yeah. <clears throat> and one time I had pulled up in a line of cars at a, at a light and I was sitting there waiting and all of a sudden I opened my eyes and the cars had left and I had fallen asleep with my waiting at the at the light. Yeah. And I went, oh, this is dangerous because yes. you didn't catch yourself. Yep. Going, oh, I need to, you know, I need to take some deep breaths and move my body. I missed it. So I made a rule, which is that if I begin to get that kind of drowsy, I pull over. I set it in park and 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 uh, drop the seat back and let myself go out. And what happens is I'm uncomfortable. It's not a great place to sleep. And typically in about 10 or 15 minutes, I sort of come back up out of it and then I'm reset and then I have hours when I'm not sleepy. So this is survival stuff. You cannot drive drowsy. It is deadly 
Yeah. Uh, so I just want to say that for the for whoever happens to hear this, uh, if you're one of them, uh, it's more important that you do this than it is to get to your destination when you think you're supposed to be there. That's this that, that's that uh, profound reorientation to following what your body's doing as opposed to pushing through to some pre-planned agenda you had. That's, that's so much part of the recovery or living with chronic conditions. All those are there. Let's see. I'm almost Anything there. else, Jen? One last thing, which is that there is a, a consistent reports of, of loss of coordination and equilibrium. Yeah. People's balance gets rough. And so I do things like stand on one foot and bend at the hip, you know, and like do a swan, one-legged, mm-hmm. come back up, other leg. Um, I walk around my living room. There's a rug that has a pattern, and I put my feet uh, like this rather than walking like like a usual split load. Mm-hmm. I walk like I'm walking a line, Tight and this yeah. helps my... This helps my balance. Spatial vestibular workouts as well. Yeah. Yep. Beautiful. So those are the things that go with my sort of recovering from long haul COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. This is how I've been ta- tackling it. Um, that's, that's, I mean, you're following so many principles there that work uh, at the kind of cutting edge of what helps people get over difficult situations there. Pacing, titrating, pay, you know, grading the exposure tolerating discomfort, uh, you know, jacking or hacking, you say, your physiology to slow the yeah. breathing down, et cetera. And then following the the fatigue cycle and the wakefulness cycle rather than trying to impose one. There's yeah. a lot of pieces there. Yeah, so that's, and you know, and all these things, like you, like you just alluded to, all these yeah. things are also features of aging, mm-hmm. which makes me think, you know, because uh, there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle or Examiner the last couple of days talking about long haul COVID and how the government is pounding on the drug companies, you know, find drugs that are going to help these things. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and as I'm reading it, of course, I've already got a list of these things in my notebook, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. t- taking notes mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm thinking, no, no, no. In this case, it ain't the drugs that are going to do it. It is actually your self-discipline, self-regulation. It's called grow the fuck up. <laughs> Isn't there a pill for that? Can I take a pill for that? <laughs> You're right. Yo, that's that's so that fits so much with my experience of getting over a chronic condition where I realized, no, there was no medical remedy at all that was going to help. But eventually taking a hold of it myself and finding my ways through being systematic and uh, you know, supporting myself when I needed to, that eventually worked out for me too. So it's so it's so validating in a way to hear you in this, you know, your uh, super life-threatening situation to find your way back and to come to this place of both the gratitude and the empowerment, you know, and be able to to tell us these stories and share these things with us. And I'm able to work now half time. Mm-hmm. In, you know, I have a rolfing practice, you know, which is a hands-on manual therapy, education, work with individual people. Um, I was typically working 22 to 25 people a week. Um, I am now holding it at 12. And I do it all in the morning because my mornings are energetically better. Uh, 
I've, I'm not, you know, I've, I've gotten up and um, typically I'm up early anyway, before it's light, but yeah. I'm good until about two o'clock, usually two thirty in the afternoon. And then that, that fatigue stuff starts arriving. Yeah. And so I'm done work by that time. I go start at, I start at eight o'clock, but I'm 10 minutes from my office and uh, I drive over and bam. I'm nodding my head. It's just, it's been so important for me to design my day around those cycles of uh, wakefulness and give myself permission not to be in that state if it's not the right time. Yeah. Uh, over decades, actually, it's been the, that process of refining that. All right. So uh, our rollout. Uh, thank, thank you, Jan. I just want to thank you again for taking the time and sharing in so many ways. Just just what I'd hope for, just the conversation I wanted to have with you. Great. Well, pleasure. A pleasure to play and to see you again and be able to actually have a conversation yes. in years. Yes. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, if you ever want to talk shop about other things like the oh, body. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we got plenty of stuff to talk about. All right. Thank you, Jen. Let me do the closing sponsor announcement. Okay, yeah, go. The closing sponsor announcement, Books of Discovery has been part of massage and bodywork education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. In these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcasts, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the bodywork and massage community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Stop by our site, Whitney's site, my site for show notes, the transcripts and extras. Uh, Whitney's site, academyofclinicalmassage.com. My site, advanced-trainings.com. You can find us either place there. Jen, if people want to know more about you or give some feedback or have a conversation, what's the best way for them to do that? And we can put all the details in the show notes, but what do you want to, what do you want to say now about getting in touch with you? Well, I want to say first off that I am way behind in in uh, managing my website. Okay. <laughs> you know, my, my admin, I just have been slack about that. But it's jansultan.com. Okay. And that can get you into a, a bunch of my lectures and stuff which have been, you know, are floating around in the in inner space somewhere. Nice. Um you've been busy hanging out in the pink and getting up and out of the chair. So yeah. Great. So you have a website, jansultan.com. Any other contact information you want to mention here? Well, my email is, is janhsultan at gmail.com. All right. We'll and you can email too. me and ask me questions. Nice. Um, I do online tutorials sometimes where people will send me photographs of people that are in their practice nice. and want to ask questions about procedure and tactics in terms of working. And I charged my hourly fee for that, which is 200 bucks an hour, which is what I charged for my practice time. Mm -hmm. So I'm up to do tutorials like that, one-on-one. -on -one, Distance where, tutorials with Jan Sultan. You heard it here. Yeah. Um, had good success with this. Um, I've had uh, 
currently have a couple of people, one lady who's Japanese, who's working on her mother and sends me yeah. clips of her mom walking and stills. And then we get on the phone and both look at the clip and talk back and forth. And uh, Well, do you realize that was 23 years ago we were doing that uh, conference call course, which is kind of the model we were doing then. So no, it's it, there's so much usefulness that's there and there's so many more tools available to us now that yeah. I want to give you a plug there. If there are questions or things you want to hear me or Whitney talk about, email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us on social media just under our names, Till Luca or Whitney Lowe. Uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people find this show. And you can also hear us, of course, on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And please do share the word and tell a friend. That's how we are able to keep doing what we do. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again, Jen. Okay, Till. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye.